0: and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Thank you for tuning in to Grieving Voices Today, my guest is David Richman. He is an author, public speaker, philanthropist, and endurance athlete whose mission is to form more meaningful human connections through storytelling. In his first book, Winning the Middle of the Pack, he discussed how to get more out of ourselves than ever imagined. With Cycle of Lives, David shares the interconnected stories of people overcoming trauma and delves deeply into their emotional journeys with an with cancer he continues to do Ironman triathlons and a wide range of endurance athletic events having recently completed a solo 4,700 mile bike ride he is married and lives in southern Nevada and has twins who are in college thank you so much for being here
1: oh thank you Victoria I'm looking forward to talking to
0: you yeah I actually saw a little fun fact Mm -hmm. Um, I looked up really like where would for it Forty seven hundred miles. Where could that get me? But right. from Kansas, if you flew from Kansas, forty seven hundred miles, you get to Belgium. Yeah. Kansas to Belgium is forty seven hundred miles.
1: <laughs> That's a lot of miles. It You're also just gets shy you... forty seven
0: hundred. That's crazy. That's
1: crazy. It also gets you from L.A. to San Diego, across Arizona, up to Albuquerque, down to. Dallas and then Austin and then back up to Houston through the panhandle of Florida, down to um, Tampa, over to Orlando and then up to New York city. That's 4,700 miles. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
0: I've seen bikers like coming through. I'm in North Dakota. They come through and it's like 85 degrees and they're biking up going. I'm like, I just, anybody who can, first of all, I think it's hard enough running, but biking up a hill, <laughs> like, it, I don't know. It
1: yeah, it was tough. And you know, the first 12 days, the high was never below a hundred. How? Oh my how, gosh. How do it you do so, it? It was a rough start. It how do you, start.
0: I mean, I know we'll get there like in this conversation, but like just the mental fortitude that that takes.
1: Yeah. That one That one was tough. I think the toughest thing about the bike ride, really, like physically, the toughest thing was it was it was shocking how and I'm, I'm not even exaggerating, Victoria. It was shocking how no matter what direction I went, the wind was in my face. It was it was maddening. I had one day. One day outside of Albuquerque. So from Albuquerque to wherever I went that day where the wind was behind me. And it was my shortest day by four hours on the bike in the entire 45 days. I, wow. I don't think I ever had a day where the wind wasn't in my face. It was maddening, maddening.
0: What an incredible feat. I mean, you could probably just, did you document that journey?
1: So I did. So um, the book is written first person from each of the 15 participants. So I, I interviewed them, got their stories and, and I wrote their story. First person is them okay or third person is them but still it was it was their perspective in between each of those stories is a short little narrative that talks about the bike ride uh, my um, feelings about the the uh, person that whose story just ended or the person whose story was coming and then you know some of the people I met along the way and my own dealing with the grief of losing my sister to cancer so it's a, it's a narrative that kind of binds those stories together.
0: How did this come to fruition? This mission to this 4,700 mile bike ride? Uh,
1: well, so the, the bike ride was kind of a little bit of an afterthought. Um, what I, what I wanted to do was, um, so my sister had been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. Okay. So she had uh young family, job, friends, the whole thing, very vibrant uh, woman, you know, you know, living her fullest life. And she was faced with this reality. And her and I talked about things a lot, Uh, maybe not every aspect of, of what was going to happen, but pretty much we, we, we talked a lot and I did a uh, relay for life near the end of her actually a couple of days after she she passed away um, I did a relay for life, which is a twenty four hour you know event I did the whole twenty four hours and I noticed that um, that people did not openly communicate about the emotional side of their trauma They were able to talk about like the tasks when am I going to get my next pet scan how do I navigate work um, what, what's the best way to reduce stress? What's about like, all the tasks around their, their, their cancer? Uh, very, uh, a lot of opinions, very open to talk about. But when it came to the emotions, they just weren't. And that kind of set uh, a seed for me. Um, I was kind of just shocked by that. And then every year, her name was June. Every year I did a for June in June um, endurance event where I'd raise money for the cancer center that took care of her. And I noticed that same recurring theme where people just weren't able to talk about the emotional side of it. And I thought, Hmm, what if I got a group of really diverse people who had varying uh, bouts with cancer or uh, came from the uh, perspective of a caregiver or a doctor or a survivor, loved one, whatever, and they were young, old, different types of cancer, different emotional ex- experiences, different sets of of childhood traumas, all these like wildly diverse factors. I figured if I covered a, as much of the general population as possible, then maybe we could start to understand how to start those conversations like how like what are people going through, what have they gone through? And how can we better relate to them so that we can talk about these things that people don't talk about the emotional side of it? So a long answer to your question, but how did the bike ride happen? Was I thought if we're connected by story, which I think we are, right? You know, you're, you're telling stories all the time. People that you have on are telling stories. We're connected by stories and we're connected by emotions. What better way to connect these things than to get on a bike and, go visit the people that I had um, talked to for a couple of years, um, but never, I had never met most of them. And so I thought it would be a good experience to connect that. And along the way, um, try to see whether or not this thought of people are not equipped to talk about the emotional side of trauma and grief and other things. Um, And every single day, Victoria, that, that was reinforced that, you know, that, that this was, Even if it doesn't change the world, maybe it'll equip a few people to better understand how to start these hard conversations about the emotional side.
0: That's beautiful. It's a beautiful concept. I love the story. I love it because obviously what I do is try to pull out the emotion of Mm -hmm. people's experiences. And as a grief recovery specialist, I can tell you it is really difficult to, to help people to see that going there is healing.
1: It really yeah. is. It, it, it totally is. And, you know, it's understandable why people don't talk. Like I've learned that through this journey because well, they don't want to say something stupid. They don't want to um guilt others. They don't want to, like my life is great and I'm talking about your life, which sucks. And I don't want to make you feel bad. I don't want to feel guilty about how good I feel and how great things are for me. Right. Or people, they don't want sympathy. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why you kind of clam up about these things, but I mean, honestly, it's just shocking to me how many people, I mean, it's endless, endless people said to me, Oh my gosh, I wish I knew what to say. Or, uh, you know, I, I, I never really talked to my daughter about this because of X, Y, Z reason. I sure wish I knew how, or I sure knew where I could start doing that. Um, and, and that's what I think these stories do is they shed light on this kind of block that we have about talking about this or dealing, even dealing with the emotional side of it. And, and I think, you know, like, for example, like I, 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 just recently, just got a a note from a from a doctor who a, a retired um I forget what kind of oncologist oncologist he was, but um he said when I read your book, the first thing I did was uh, read it in horror, thinking, oh my gosh, I was not a good enough doctor, I I didn't know my patients the way I should have. He says, and then I let go of that thought. I read it the second time, thinking about how interesting these people were, and I thought to myself, how cool is that? You know, I've gotten, you know, plenty of notes from people saying, oh, now I understand, or I better understand, or this makes me be able to talk to so-and-so. And um, geez, if I've only affected if the few people that have, you know, sent me these kind of notes, how great is that?
0: Yeah. Can you give an example from your book? One of the stories? Yes.
1: I'll give you one of my favorite examples. Um, so I think um, that we can all put ourselves in the position of how difficult it might be as a patient, but how about how difficult it might be as an oncologist uh, to deal with patients? And so I interviewed a woman who was absolutely spectacular. She'd been an a oncologist uh, specializing in female and male breast cancer for nearly 40 years at NYU. And wow, what a great story she had. And the reason that she was open to talking to me was because she had come to realization, having lived a long, successful life and having given um, so much to the community and was so passionate about wellness and survivorship, um, had a successful marriage, had raised a daughter who had grown up and gone off to her own career. She had realized that when she started out as an oncologist, Victoria, she kind of was just super focused on treatment and care and do, do things this way or whatever. And if people didn't really bond with her or listen to her, she just kind of moved on to the next patient. But after 40 years, she realized she was really good at what she did. And it, and she, if people weren't willing to take her, her medical advice, she wasn't willing to, to help them because she knew that she was a very good doctor. And she knew that what she, that her a regimen of, of, of care could enhance their lives, perhaps prevent uh, um, acceleration of their cancer, maybe even save their life. And she knew if they didn't listen to her, what they might potentially miss out on because she was at a point in her life where she was grateful for so much. And so her dilemma was how do I walk out of one patient room where somebody wants to not take my advice and I know if they take my advice, it will help them. And if they don't take my advice, it could potentially be disastrous. How do I walk out of that room and into the next room where there's a woman with two little kids on our laps and I've got to tell her that she's going to die, right? That there's nothing I can do for her. The other woman, I could have done something. She won't listen to me. This woman can, and just how emotionally difficult that was. And then we talked about that, issue around the backdrop of not only being um, a, a, a woman oncologist at a time when women were not becoming doctors and surgeons and oncologists and the discrimination that she faced and how she overcame that, but also the fact that, you know what, you look at a doctor and think everything's wonderful, but we find out that when she was 12, she came home one day and her dad just never came home. Like he abandoned the family. And how she was able to um, go through her life and uh, uh, fix that part of her, or at least reconcile that part of her enough to live a life where she could be loved and where she could love somebody else without this fear of abandonment. And so I thought to myself, um, after talking to her, you know what, maybe she is much more in tune with being a good provider, but maybe perhaps when somebody comes in and a doctor is not as friendly or not as open or is maybe a little more distant, maybe they're going through their own stuff. Maybe when the doctor comes in, if we could take one second and ask, how are you doing? Maybe that doctor just walked out of a room where somebody wouldn't listen to them. And they're so upset about the fact that, that they want to help this person and they won't take it. Then they walk into our room carrying that into here, maybe, maybe they just need a minute of attention. So those are the kind of stories that I think maybe will, will open up people's minds to think about how we might better communicate with those around us.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Because Mm -hmm. to be honest, I had never considered that side of it. Mm -hmm. I hadn't.
1: Who does? You wouldn't normally.
0: Right. The thinking of what that might be like for an oncologist. Right. Mm-hmm. I, and I've thought about certain different careers, you know, mm-hmm. social workers, you know, going into homes where they have to take the children away or, you know, things like that. But I've never thought of the oncologist and even just me with this podcast. I'm sure people that you've talked to, it's like, wow, that sounds depressing. Like the work you know the work that i'm doing and in grief recovering stuff like people say well that sounds really depressing right but i imagine for an oncologist it really is but it can also be equally rewarding too
1: yeah but i i couldn't i couldn't imagine i couldn't before i did this project i couldn't imagine i didn't even let it enter my realm like how in the world could somebody be an oncologist how could somebody deal with this kind of heaviness. I just didn't even let it into my realm. And then when I did let it in my realm, I'm just like, God, there's no way I could ever do that. Are you kidding me? To give bad news, to receive, you know, to, to watch what, what, I mean, God, it takes a special person to be able to do that. And um, so I think that I have maybe just another level of respect, admiration, um, empathy for people that that deal with this heavy heavy stuff there's another one oh uh, gosh um jen excuse me her story is absolutely amazing like her is one of the most heartwarming but also tragic situations ever she watched her um dad um uh, die of cancer when she was six years old and uh um, I'm going to condense the story really short. She grew up to be this super happy, lighthearted, wonderful, joyful, life is great kind of person. And it's because her mom and her sister in the community kind of really huddled to this loss and to the closeness. And just the, she just lived in a very safe, loving environment, even though she lost her, her dad. And her dad called her nurse, Jen, because she had, during hospice, she would bring him like a soda or something or whatever. And she kind of remembered that she ends up going to nursing school. And the last thing she would ever do is, was it would end up in an oncology unit, especially a pediatric oncology unit. But she's got to do her rotation and she does a rotation. She comes home bawling her eyes out, calls her mom. And it's like, I just did the pediatric oncology rotation. And her mom goes, it'll be okay. And, and Jen goes, how would I ever not do that? Like, I have to, that's what I have to do. So she does that. Long, long story again, to the question of, you know, how she deals with the pain of it is she goes, every once in a while, I go go home and I have a cat day. I just pet my cat. Because if I let myself think about all of the heaviness and all of the craziness that I deal with, it would really, really bring me down. She goes, I just sometimes just need to check out and pet my cat. Because otherwise, it's just too heavy. And I just go, golly. And I couldn't handle one day of that. And she's doing it for her whole life. She's planning on doing it for her whole life. Like It just takes a special kind of person. So I I think that we oftentimes want to just go oh i don't know how you could go through that as a person with cancer or dealing with some other type of trauma but the people like you the professionals that give care and attention to to the people that are going through these things wow man that is another level
0: to that point kind of a commercial anyway yeah. in my a local commercial in our state where they talk about the n- mental health of doctors and nurses mm-hmm. and you know and staff like that because as you said like they're every day they're in this environment of great loss and sadness and and there's great stories of overcoming too but to not be able to bring that home and but they're just like the rest of us just mm-hmm. as equally have the potential to fall victim to addiction and alcohol use. And, you know, so I can't recall the statistic right now, but it was actually quite high of how many doctors commit suicide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So just wanted to support that point you made and that the emotional health and well-being of physicians and caregivers and caretakers. I actually just had a thought. I was just pulling weeds in my garden last night. And I just thought, you know, sometimes the helper needs help. Yeah. Too. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's 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 really tough. So so not only the caregiver professional, but also the survivor, the one going mm-hmm. through the cancer, just what is their experience? And so what I what I what I did, Victoria, is I said, um, we, we all kind of have the same emotional responses to trauma. Maybe we don't explore those emotions, but we have the same emotional. St- Experience right like for example, if you were stuck in a cave and a big black bear came in to attack you, you would be fearful, and there's not anybody that wouldn't be fearful now, if we were to survive that, we might or might not be able to talk about it or reconcile it or you share it with others or whatever, but we would have all experienced that fear so uh, what I tried to do was to say um, with each story. Point a is when they encountered cancer. You know, Jen is the six year old, um, um, Dr. Myers as, as a 14 year old or how old she was, 13 years old, eighth grade trip to the hospital where she was just like, Oh my God, I'm going to become a doctor. So point a is then, or as a patient, when you're diagnosed with cancer, point B is today. How did the emotional journey from point a to point B happen or not happen? What, you know, how were you able to or not able to deal with the emotional side in relation to the traumas that happened prior to point A? So an example would be Patricia's story. And Patricia's story is her cancer journey is just ridiculous to trap, try to wrap your brain around. But she had five different cancers over a 35-year period. Could you imagine? Five different cancers. So basically, she was at the point where she was just like, whatever, whatever it is, just cut it out there was really nothing left to cut out and um, also took care while she was going through chemo, took care of her dad who was dying of, of prostate. I believe prostate cancer. I don't remember which, which one, but um, just, and, and, and works in, in survivorship community and the whole thing, right? Her whole life has been fixated on dealing with her cancer or helping others better navigate their own cancer journeys. But her story really Victoria is about that in relation to the four years that she was basically kept prisoner in a very, very abusive, you know, mentally, physically, and emotionally abusive relationship. She gets out of that and you go, well, how could anybody ever survive that, let alone be open to finding love and trusting somebody, let alone be able to now start a fight for 30, for the upcoming 35 years of dealing with cancer. And so I think what we can take from that is h- how strong you could be is just what did you already survive, right? Cause I, the first thing that I think of, and I think it's pretty normal to think, and most people would think of five times cancer for 35 years. There's no way I could have dealt with that. There's no way, no way possible. And that's what people go like, I can't even imagine like how, who does that? Who survives 35 years of five different kinds of cancers? And then if you put it into perspective of look at what you survived before that, who hasn't survived trauma, who hasn't overcome difficulty, maybe not to that extent, but yeah, maybe you gather the tools that you need and you draw on them to deal with whatever you need to deal with. And so when she says, and this is kind of giving away the punchline, but when she says that, you know, I might not gotten very far out of bed, but every single day, my goal was to get up out of bed. And I did, even if I only took one step, but my goal was to get out of bed every day. That I can understand how important that is. And that was one thing that she was able to draw on to keep herself going every single day. And I go, well, if somebody said that to me originally, like, oh, I go, how did you deal with your cancer? And they go, oh, I just got out of bed every day. It wouldn't make sense to me. sound a little trite. But in relation to her story and what she overcame and what it takes to get out of bed every single day to try to, with optimism and strength, go about your day and fight whatever comes to you, now I get it. Do you know? So I think I can draw from that. Maybe I can understand it a little bit.
0: Can you tell us about June and what she taught you?
1: So I could tell you that I was always a little jealous of June in one sense that we both had kind of the same traumatic childhood. Right. And we both had the same kind of adversities. But oh my God, she found herself a husband, had kids, had a great career, had all these friends, and she was so happy and so like lighthearted. And meanwhile, I was all bro- brooding and heavyhearted and <laughs> overcome with all this you know, this nonsense. I was always kind of like, man, she's living her life. She's so happy. So one of the things about June that I remember is that she was just a happy person and, and that's, that's really hard. Like I don't find that many like truly grounded, like present, just happy people. And the fact that she had that for so many years is a real neat thing to remember about her, you know? And I thought, um, so, so that's what I remember about her that what did she teach me kind of a lot, you know, more ab- about, a life I've learned from keeping her present right after she died, keeping her present by embarking on these projects and, you know, forcing myself to kind of think about her as I'm biking across the country, these kind of things um, that, um, uh, you know, that she's had a really profound effect on my life. If nothing other than, you know, the, person that holds up a mirror that allows me to, you know, kind of look at myself and examine, you know, and she might be that person that holds up that mirror. And if that's the only thing that she's continuing to do, how grateful am I that she's doing that? So I think that, you know, what I've learned from this experience, whether she's taught me that or directly or indirectly, is that examination and dealing with these things and coming to terms with them or attempting to come to terms with these difficult things is a needed aspect of life. Like we can't just pack everything in a box in our brains and let it collect dust and think that it's like it's done. I think that we got to unpack all these boxes, examine it all and continue stronger, more enlightened, more grounded, more centered, more connected to the people around us. And I think she's helped me do that.
0: So I was, you had mentioned that At one point, you were kind of downtrodden and Mm -hmm. kind of woe is me, so Mm, to speak. Sure. Uh, So was her diagnosis kind of what pulled you out of that and then started this mission that you have now?
1: Yeah, it kind of, Victoria, it's a great question. And it all kind of happened right about the same time. So I was in a very bad um, situation personally, Um, uh, and I had young twins, four years old. Um, and we had to get out of that situation. And it was, I was unhealthy. I was a smoker. I was overweight. I had a ton of stress in my life, uh, both personally and professionally. And I had to make a change. And at the same time, uh, June called me and told me that she had uh, 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 gotten news about a, tumor, a brain tumor. And so all of that happened at the same time. And so I don't think it was that event that made me change, but it was a series of events that happened kind of all at the same time where I thought to myself, you know, you can, you can uh, go through life reacting to things, or you can try to maybe for once in your life, take a hold of the things that are in your life and determine your own course. And so um, I, I think that prior to that point, I was I, I was, um, in a very negative space, even though I had some great things happen to me, but I just, I don't know. I just didn't feel connected to who I am. And, and, and I felt like I wasn't doing anything on purpose. I wasn't doing everything because I got to do it. I was doing everything accidentally. And because I had to, but then I just kind of changed that mindset and said, no, 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 no. You gotta, you gotta fix this stuff and you got, you gotta start thinking about, you know, the person in the mirror rather than, you know, what am I doing to make the boss happy or what am I doing to make the wife happy or, you know, you know, doing things because I think I have to, right. I got to start doing things because I get to do them. And that really, that really kind of 180 my view on, on, on life and my perspective on things, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah. You began to live with intention.
1: Yeah. What it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So have you worked through then? Like, where did you start? Like, the, you didn't specifically say what you experienced in childhood, but I like to think that adulthood is childhood reenactments. Yes. <laughs> and so um, the experiences that you had in childhood obviously were impacting you in adulthood, which I feel like is the absolute truth for all of us, yeah. unless they're addressed how did you start? Where did you start?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a good question. And look, I'm I'm still in the midst as I'm hoping everybody is still in the midst of trying to be better, right? Trying to figure it out. right? I always say that I have kind of everything in common with the person that thinks their best days are ahead of them and not much in common with the person that thinks their best days are behind them, right? I just don't have... Because I feel like we're, we got to constantly evolve. We got to constantly try better. We got to constantly learn. And, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll fall into a pattern where, God, that pattern's been around for decades and it's caused me to act a certain way or react a certain way. And then I go, oh, you know, I can do better. And it's like, well, if I still believe that after doing the same thing the wrong way for 30 years, well, okay, I'll, that's, I, I'm comfortable with that you know, like that I could do better. So I think where it started was, honestly, I I did get my kids and me out of this bad situation. And I just said to myself, look, dude, you're in your 30s. I was in my late 30s at this point. And I said, you're overweight. You're a smoker. You're not healthy. You're not happy. You're not doing the things you want to do. I literally, Victoria, stood in front of a mirror going, who do you want to be? Like, literally, like, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Do you want to be this bitter kind of sarcastic kind of like, you know, like take on the world by yourself and just woe is me and whatever kind of person, or do you want to just like, like become something else? Who do you want to be? And the first thing I wanted to be was healthy. I said, if I'm going to be alone with my kids, I want to be around. And, 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 you know, especially in light of finding out that my sister was going to die soon or might die soon from her cancer. And I thought, geez, man, I got to start becoming healthy. Well, how do you become healthy? Well, you stop smoking. How do you stop smoking? Well, you start running because you can't run and smoke. You certainly can't (laughs) swim and smoke. So I'll start swimming and running, right? Because that'll stop me from smoking. And that was step one. And then, okay, well, now that I'm healthy, I got to start losing weight because, you know, trying to run with 30 or 40 or 50 extra pounds on you is a lot harder than running without those extra pounds. And then I thought, well, why don't you sleep better? Why don't you reduce stresses? Why don't you get rid of people in your life that are bad influences or that you, that aren't positive friends that, that don't uplift you? Um, Why don't you, um, when you go to work, why don't you start doing things because it's the right thing for you to do, not the right thing that you think your boss says you should do, right? Why don't you treat employees the way you want to be treated, not the way you think that they want to be treated, right? So I just started, like you said, with intention, one thing after another, after another, after another. So it just, it started at that point. And, and honestly, that was the beginning of a February of that year. Um, and by March, I had done a 5K by July, I had done a half Ironman. And by November, I did a full Ironman. So I said, I'm going to take it on. And I really took it on.
0: <laughs> wow. What year was this?
1: Uh, this was, so my kids were five So that was, uh, 1998 or so.
0: That was when your sister was diagnosed as well.
1: Let's see. Wait, wait, no, no, I was wrong. That would be 2003. My kids were born in, in, in 1998. So that would have been 2003. Yeah.
0: That you changed your life. And just
1: almost 20 years ago.
0: And when your sister was diagnosed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that was 2003. Um, she died in 2007 and, um, <clears throat> I did events for a number of years and then uh, took on this project starting in about 2011 or 12. So uh, it took me a long time to put together the book, to make sure that I had the right people to just a couple of years ago, do the bike ride, connect it all. Then I had to go through my you know, editing and find a, find the right publisher and go through their editing and the whole thing. It's It's, you know, it's not easy to put a project like this together, but yeah, that whole journey. In fact, I've been doing endurance athletics now for close to 20 years. And, you know, my, my kids know me as the, you know, they were five years old, six years old when, when they were running across the finish line with me, you know, and and that's all they know me as. And so it's kind of cool.
0: So who inspires you today?
1: Oh, wow. I think I'm more inspired, not by a person, but I'm inspired by the belief that um, that you can have an effect on others, even if it's only an effect on my kids, my wife, myself, you can have an effect on others. I'm inspired by that. I'll never forget. I was embarrassed one year um, because I did a, an event to raise money for the cancer center that took care of June. And I was kind of embarrassed by the fact that I only raised a couple thousand dollars that year. It wasn't it wasn't that big of a deal. And I told that to the person that was coordinating the whole thing. And she goes, what are you kidding me? She goes, do you know how many times we tell your story to donors? Do you know how many times we tell people, oh, this guy did, you know, this 87 mile run in Mexico and it was to honor his sister and he did this solo ride and run in Mexico, 22 and a half hours. And we, we, we say those are the kind of people that are dedicated to our center and that raises us endless amounts of money. She goes, so just the fact that you let us tell your story is, is enough. And I'm just like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Right? So even if I, even if it only affects one person, but um, I had no idea that they were bragging about my story, which was nothing to me. And and it was helping them in, in these other ways. So I think I'm inspired by the fact that you never know what good thing you might be doing or what positive thing you might be doing that might affect other people and that they might carry on you know, for a long time. So I think that's what inspires me to continue to do these things is that yeah, even if it has a positive effect on one person, that's good enough for me.
0: I agree. And for those listening who feel like, because I struggled for a very long time, like I had this innate sense that I could do more. I was made for more. Like my Mm -hmm. potential was not being met. And I always thought, what is it going to look like for me helping people? Like, what does that look like? And so for anyone listening, what is something that it, cause you don't have to ride 87 miles or, you know, 4,700 miles to have an impact. Right? right. So are there stories that you of people who you've met along the way who have done, who have had equal impact, but maybe don't think so or just for some examples for people to. Sure.
1: Oh, you for sure. Of- you came to me every single day on that ride and certainly a ton of other times um, throughout this whole kind of cycle of lives journey Um, I've run into people who just like, if I talk about it, it's as fresh as if it happened yesterday. And it's probably something that they've never thought of again, but it, it touches me in a way where I just go, I, people are remarkable. So I'll give you two quick stories. So one is I was at the end of one of the most ridiculous days ever, like 17 hours, 156 miles. I had like five flats. I was a because I didn't have support that day. And so I was on my own from morning until night. It was absolutely 17 hours on a bike, which is just, it's just un, unbelievable. And this was like day 30. So it's like, I man, I'm, I'm not, it's like, I'm not fresh when I start that day. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm anyway. So I get to the hotel. And the night manager is working the desk and she comes running around the corner. She goes, oh, my God, we were afraid you weren't going to make it. I go, "Okay," because all the hotels were donated. Right. And I was on a schedule. And she goes, I was so interested to meet you because my grandfather just passed away from cancer a couple of weeks ago. And he and I were so close and I was hoping I got to meet you. And I read about what you're doing. And I think it's so great. And I'd love to make a donation. And I went, Oh, that's really sweet. Right. How, how nice. So the only open uh, restaurant at that time, it was like midnight, it was like a burger King. So I got back on my bike and went through the burger King drive through and, and got myself a burger, went up to my room and I get a call from this, this manager and I go, yeah, what's up? And she goes, well, I went on your site and made a donation and it was a, it was a very modest donation. Okay. Very modest. And but didn't matter to me, right? I'm I'm just touched that somebody would take take the time. And she said, I was wondering, um, is that a one-time donation or is that a monthly thing? Because I don't know if I could afford that much monthly. And I went, no, 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 it was a one-time donation. It doesn't matter, it's really, really sweet of you. So it it was just like what I might have easily taken for granted that dollar amount, right? Just easily. It was such a big deal for her that she was afraid that she couldn't afford that much monthly, but she still wanted to give. I was just like, Holy oh,
0: God. brings tears to my eyes. I
1: know. How sweet is that? Um, So another story is at the end of another really difficult day, every day, every story starts with at the end of a difficult day. So um, uh, I, I did have a friend supporting me that day and we found a restaurant that was open, a little Italian restaurant know, starving. And I started eating the meal and we're talking about the event and what I'm doing and whatever. And the, the waitress overhears it. She starts asking questions and the owner comes over. Oh, everybody in my family has been touched by cancer one way or another, blah, 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 blah. Appreciate what you're doing. Love to buy you the meal. And I went, wow, that's pretty sweet. Cause it's a little family restaurant. It's in the middle of Louisiana, you know, like they're not you know, they're, they're not a chain restaurant that could afford to be comping meals all night long. So I I was really touched by that. And then at the end of the night, when we finished our meal, the three waitresses that were working that night came over and wanted to take a picture with me. And I thought, Oh, that's really sweet. And they handed me an envelope and it had, again, a very modest sum of money. And, um, I said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. And they go, no, what you're doing is amazing. We wanted to give you our tips for the night as, as support and i said oh my god they worked the entire night maybe second jobs i'm guessing in louisiana the minimum wage is not very high and they were so moved by this stranger that came in to give me their tips for the night so that we could you know continue to raise money and i just thought god people are so nice right like like so so the impact that that had and how many times I've told those stories, those are just two of a thousand stories I could tell and have told that just remind me of how remarkable people are and what, how a little gesture it could go so far. It could go so far.
0: And I think too, sometimes when we tell people, oh no, don't, please don't do that. Or, you know, we are taking away their opportunity to feel joy, oh, their opportunity absolutely. to give And I I I someone I don't know, I had an instance or experience some time ago that really made me realize that that we have one hand for giving and one hand for receiving. And it's just as important to be able to receive as it is to give. And for people who have a hard time receiving, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really easy to say, Oh no, no, please don't. You know. Yeah.
1: I've been but it's so important.
0: It's so important for the giver though. Yeah.
1: I've been that person my whole life. I have literally just started learning how to allow people to help me because it's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And I need to give them the opportunity to do what they want to do, just as they give me the opportunity to do what I want to do. It's something exactly. I'm just learning because I, you know, I become this guy who was totally self reliant. So then I, I, I'm able to do the things that I need to do because I have to do them. Right. Cause I had to, well, who doesn't, we're all kind of that person. And then I go, no, like I'm hosting a bunch of people and I go, no, 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 I got it, I got it. No, do you need help cutting? No, I got it. Do you need help prep? No, I got it. Do you need help setting up? No, 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 you relax, I got it. Meanwhile, I'm sitting there going, I'm controlling the whole situation. I'm not giving them the opportunity to do what they want to do, which is help. And it's a hard lesson to learn, but it's, it's an important one. And I literally, Victoria, as old as I am, as much as I've been through, I'm just now understanding that you know what, when people offer help, it's not because they think you can't do it. It's because they want, right. help.
0: They want to right. help. We often have that story in our head. Like, yeah. like you just said, like, well, they you know, we, 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 believe that for whatever reason that we got it, we can take care of it all. Or we yeah. have, we, you know, we've always done that, or yeah. we have the story that they think they think I can't do it. Well, I'll show yeah. them. <laughs>
1: you know i know yeah but even yeah. if that's our own garbage it still yeah. is you know what it, it it's 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 really nice cuz when i go to somebody else's house i feel uncomfortable if i'm not helping and here i am making everybody feel uncomfortable cuz i'm not allowing them to
0: help yeah we go against the law of reciprocity <laughs> yeah. right, So
1: I'm, I'm glad we were able to talk about this cuz it's going to keep it in the front of my mind to always let people help if they want
0: yeah so what is one tip that you've, and I'm sure you have many, but something that's really sticks out to you that you've heard through other people's stories, a tip that you would give other hurting hearts.
1: Uh, okay, well, I'm going to give it to you because you're such a good interviewer, but I never give this one away because it gives away the ending of the book. But I'm going to oh. tell you, I'm going to tell you, because it's such a great question. And and I I know that not everybody has time to read books and whatever, but... It's a lesson that I learned, uh, and it came to m- my consciousness literally at the very end of my bike ride. So, you know, I set down on this whole thing to start the hard conversations and better equip people to understand what they've gone through and all of this other stuff. So I'm, I'm at the end of the ride. I'm literally like on the other side of the George Washington bridge, like trying to figure out how to get into and. And navigate to the right place in Central Park. I don't know where to go. And I see these two uh, cyclists and they're talking and I wait for them to finish. And I, and I talk to one of them and I say, Hey, how, how do I get over the bridge and where do I go? Where, where do I turn? What do I do? And so she gave me directions. And then she noticed on my Jersey that I had a stupid cancer logo. One of those uh, charities that, that, that cycle lives project supports. And by the way, all the proceeds from the book go to support that the cancer focused charities that were picked by the book participants. And she goes, Oh my gosh, are you doing a ride? And I go, yeah. She goes, where'd you ride from? And I said, Oh, I came from Manhattan beach. She goes from Manhattan, like downtown Manhattan. I go, no Manhattan beach, like California. She was like, what? And so we started talking for a minute she goes, Oh my God. She goes, well, I'm a cyclist because my dad, And I said, Oh, that's kind of cool. And she goes, yeah, I died four years ago from cancer. And the only thing he really wanted to do was to ride his bike. And I go, Oh my gosh, I go, what was he like? And she told me a couple of stories. And then she said, Oh my God, you want to hear a story about um, his funeral? And so she told me this crazy story about his funeral. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh. And I said, what, you know, what do you think about when you're, when you're riding?" and blah, 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 blah. And so we had like this, I don't know, seven, eight minute conversation. And I went my way and she went her way. We'll never talk to or we'll see each other ever pass. We'll never cross again. And as I'm biking across the bridge, I'm thinking to myself, when I started this journey, if somebody would have told me, oh, their father died of cancer four years ago, I would have went, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, I'm sorry. And I would have uncomfortably exited the conversation and went about my way. But now I know that that was an invitation for me to ask, oh, were you close. How do you feel about it? Wow, it's been four years. You know, how does that affect you? Or wow, tell me about him or whatever. And it had this great, you know, uplifting, wonderful, even if it was, if if it ends up being a heavy conversation, which sometimes it does, but it's this this another level of connection where somebody says, you know what, even if it was a total stranger, they heard me. Or for me, I'm the total stranger who somebody entrusted to tell a couple of these very intimate stories to. And um, the the way that, so, so it was a little practical joke. He loved, um, he loved cycling so much. And everybody used to make fun of the fact that he had this one Jersey that had all these little ice cream cones all over it this one little bike jersey so he said to his daughter hey you know when you do the viewing put me in my little ice cream cone jersey and he thought that would put a smile on everybody's face and I thought to myself how sweet is it that if I'd never asked her that story I would have never if I never asked her about her dad I would have never got the story and this was whatever three four years ago I don't think it's ever left me the vision of a guy lying in his mm-hmm. coffin wearing a ice cream cone cycling jersey just to put a smile on people's faces. How wonderful is that?
0: Yeah. And so,
1: very long answer to your question of what do you learn? That's something to learn It's just lean in, like have the conversation. Don't don't be afraid to say something stupid. Right. And oftentimes that question I'll I'll follow up with is were you close to them? Because might be a stupid question. Like, of course I was, it was my dad, you idiot. But most nobody's going to say that they are either going to say, no, I wish I was closer or they're going to say, yeah, actually I was. And And it'll be a, a prompt to continue to have you have a little bit of a connection to them. So again, sorry for the long answer, but, but I think it's what I've learned is that, leaning in, that asking a question, that being able to be vulnerable, or allow them to be vulnerable, but it's safe, you know, in a safe place that mm-hmm. you really care. Um, uh, that's what I've learned is that's, that's, you know, there's, that's where some beauty lies in all of this nonsense.
0: I completely picked up on that right away. You asked her, you asked her about him and I think it's really giving people the permission to share because mm-hmm. sometimes people feel like, especially as grievers, they don't want to, you know, bring the mood down or make someone else, you know, where, you know, I could go into a lot of stuff with grief recovery and everything I've learned, but it's really about permission, I think, yeah, for a lot of
1: grievers. What you said is about us being, you know, uh, uh, what do you say, uh, grown up kids or whatever? You know, well, you I think
0: just- it's being curious.
1: Yeah, but but earlier when you said we're just like grown up kids or something. Or, oh
0: yeah. Right? Um, adulthood is childhood reenactments.
1: Yeah. And what do kids want? They just want to be safe. And so mm-hmm. if you're safe, if you're given permission and somebody you know that somebody's asking a question because they care, right? Yeah. Then be f- be free to give the answer and allow them to care. It's it's a it's a weird dynamic because I, I it's totally understandable what you just said. You don't want to bring people down. You don't want to make them feel guilty. You don't want to, but you know what? They gave you permission to talk, talk. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, what I learned is to lean in more and to talk and to ask Mm -hmm. questions and to give people permission to talk about whatever they're going through.
0: Yeah. It's my mission too.
1: (laughs) Nice. Well, that's why we're aligned.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So what are ways that um, others have supported you? that you have found to be helpful as you transformed your life?
1: Oh my gosh, there, uh, there is uh, endless uh, people, right? So people have taught me how to be a better athlete, right? There are people who taught me how to, how to have work-life balance. Um, Yeah. I met, I met my wife um, who has been unbelievably supportive of the things that I want to do. So to find um, somebody that believes in you is really amazing right it's really amazing maybe she came along when when i would have allowed somebody to believe in me Mm -hmm. because maybe i believed in myself a little bit more but Mm -hmm. um she's been a great help my kids have been a wonderful help because they um i'm very close to them they're pretty talkative and we're you know we're pretty open about the effect that we've had on each other and you know life has had on us and that kind of stuff so I, i think um That I mean, there's just been endless uh, people and endless circumstances that have helped me. And I think that pretty, pretty, it probably does boil down to that. Like what you said a while ago, living with intention. I think it's like um, living on purpose, you know, like, like really taking charge of what you want to do and who you want to be and being okay with that. You know, every once in a while, God, I used to think it was so stupid. I wouldn't tell anybody I'm going to go running because I was an overweight smoker. What do I have any business doing running? So I would hide. I would just do it on. I wouldn't tell anybody,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Because I was embarrassed. Well, if, if I'm it on purpose, well, what do I care what anybody else thinks? The only matters what I think, right? And if I'm a runner, I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to tell people. If I'm going to sign up for a marathon, I'm going to tell you why not live it right living on purpose what I care what anybody else thinks only matters what I think so I think that um fortunately surrounding myself with people who were supportive or additive or at least not detractors (laughs) from what I was doing um uh that that has helped me along the way for sure
0: well I can see why you would hide that because if I were in those shoes, I would feel like, well, they're probably just going to say that, oh yeah, you've said that before, or people say that all the time. And then mm-hmm. it's like that fear of failing, not for them, but for yourself. And so if I speak it out loud, you know, it's almost like this feeling, oh, I might jinx, my, jinx myself, yeah. you know, yeah, it's totally. like what if, what if I don't follow through with this or what if, and I've already told people, right. So it's almost like you're creating your own safety blanket. Of, well, I'm not, I'm kind of committed, but I'm not committed because I didn't tell anybody else, yeah. you know? Yeah. Was that c- part of it too?
1: Abso- absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I guess a lot of people don't start things because they're afraid that they're going to fail. Right. <clears throat> and I would do that. Like uh, Whatever I took on, I knew I was going to mm-hmm. succeed, but I, I wouldn't take on things I possibly could fail at because I didn't want to fail. Right. So I never tried to quit smoking until I quit smoking. Because mm. that right. Mm-hmm. I never tried to become an athlete until I became an athlete because I didn't want to fail at it. It's like remember that that. Um, I don't know if you remember the scene in the movie, The Matrix, when they're getting ready to fight for the first time. And Lawrence Fishburne looks at, uh, at Ke- Keanu Reeves and he says, stop trying to hit me and just hit me. Right. So I didn't want to try to do something. I just wanted to do it right? And so when I felt like it was okay to be this person, then I would use what you just said to my benefit. I would say to somebody, I'd go, guess what I'm going to go do? I'm going to go do a 50 mile run, right? Look, I paid this entrance fee. I'm doing a 50 mile run. And then I'd have to do it because I didn't want to <laughs> fail, right? So, so I used it to my benefit, right? Once I knew I would do whatever it takes to accomplish it. Like I had done it, it you know, throughout my life on things that I had to do, right. I had to put food on the table or whatever, mm-hmm. or you just figure it out. But this living it on purpose and doing it with intention and being who you want to be or becoming who you want to, trying to become who you want to be. um, Yeah. Then I would put it out there knowing that I, I wasn't going to fail. If I said I was going to do something, I was going to do it. And, but being confident, right. If you want to, if you want to lose weight, if you want to be a better friend, if you want to work more, if you want to start a business, you want to do whatever, do it. But, but you know what, you got to get out there and do it. And you got to tell people you're going to do it. You got to know there's no way you're not going to succeed. And you got to just get out there and try to do it. And um, that is a different way of living your life. And it's, it's really wonderful because I don't care about failing. I don't care if I don't finish something. I don't care if I But if I if I go into it with good intention and I go into it with purpose and I give it my best effort, that's all I can ask.
0: Do you think one thing that keeps people from following through is lack of accountability? Do you think accountability is the missing piece for a lot of people?
1: Yes, it's a great question. I'm part of a group right now where we're dealing with that issue of accountability, and yes, yes. Now. There are people that are more accountable to others than they are to themselves. Right. So they won't tell other people because they don't want to be held accountable. Or they won't believe it in themselves because then they'd have to hold themselves accountable. And they, you know, so I'm the kind of person where um, I am probably equally motivated by not wanting to let myself down as I am by not wanting to let other people down. Right. But I like this idea of accountability, having a partner that holds you accountable or a group that holds you accountable, or just write something down that you have to look at it as your own self-accountability. But accountability is kind of like a scoreboard. It's kind of like a scoreboard. I don't know very many sports that are played without an accountability, without the score. Right? Yeah. Yeah we're all winners and losers. We win. Sometimes we lose sometimes right Heck, in baseball. If you're 50, 50, you're doing pretty good. So, uh, you know, I mean, as a win loss, as a team, you're doing pretty good. So, but without a scoreboard, without accountability, you don't have anything. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. Totally agree with accountability.
0: So throughout your life, what has given you the most joy and hope for the future too?
1: Oh yeah. I think the most joy has come from learning how to lean into positive relationships. I think that's where the the joy has come from. Um, I'd say second to that is um, trying to be happy, allow myself to be happy. Right. Um, I always felt like for a long time, Victoria, I thought I'm going to try to get to a point and then I'll be happy. Right? If I can get a better job, I'll be happy. If I can make more money, I'll be happy. If I just get a little bit healthier, I'll be happy. If I lose a little more weight, I'll be happy or whatever. The thing is that we tell ourselves like when this happens, then everything will be okay. That never happens. So, you know, it, whatever you're trying to get to get to be in an emotionally better place, whenever you get to that point, you're not in an emotionally better place. It's just, it's just delusional. So I have learned or I am attempting to continue to learn how to be happier and content and joyful and present and kind of grounded um, no matter what's going on. Right. So I, I, I say being happy has given me the most happiness, right? Being joyful has given me the most joy. Um, that and positive relationships. So, um, uh, I'd say a distant third is um, uh, uh, is writing. You know, so so writing is, is giving me a lot of joy as well. So, I think those those three things.
0: That's wonderful. Those are good. Those are great. Yeah. Um, I could actually go into another side thing about energy because i was i was kind of wanting to get into that about just the energy of emotion and how it gets stuck in us and then leads to disease do you have any quick thoughts about that based on the stories that you've heard from people and and how you've connected the dots to it's not just one grieving experience it's always many right
1: many I mean, look—we mm-hmm. don't know what people have gone through, what we've gone through. Like one of the things that was amazing about this this journey was—I talked to you know, tons and tons of people as potential book participants. What's amazing is no matter how incredible the story seemed to me, every single person said, "Ah, my story's not that interesting," right? And I'm just like, wow, what you went through, you know, the suicide of a parent uh, escaping, you know, certain death, you know, like all these crazy things that you experience and and it's like nothing. And it's like, we're just living, you know, people are just living the lives we live. Okay. So I do believe that some people benefit from believing in the negative negative. Like some people like ah uh, like if it's all this attention to all this negativity and that's what keeps them going right mm-hmm. and there's some people who draw themselves to all this positivity and that's what keeps them going I'm not really sure if I know if there's a cause between negativity and stress and negative elements or whatever but I will say for certain that whether each person believed it or not, Victoria, there was something unbelievably uplifting and inspiring and hopeful and positive underlying these negative experiences. Maybe at the time there wasn't anything positive about what they went through, but how it affected others or where they came out on the other side or, you know, whatever. There was some amount of positivity and it's the it's the negative stuff that that that, that kind of uh, like like makes us react and makes us feel the ouch and the pain and it's like, oh man, that's so rough but it's a positive uplifting hopeful stuff that stays with us and so I I, I, I think that it's okay to have any kind of positive or negative energy help get you through a situation but let's let's try to remember. That the positive, the the positivity, the uplifting part of it, the inspiring, the hopeful, the forward thinking, optimistic—that we can take from these things—that's what lingers, right? That's what lingers. So, so whatever you need to do to get through the situation, fine. But I really try to f- tend to focus on the positive and the uplifting. And you know, I I get this thing from everybody. Sorry for rambling a little bit, but everybody that reads the book tells me, oh my gosh, I thought it was going to be so depressing and so so rough to get through. And every one of these stories, even though sometimes they're so rough, they're like kind of inspirational, right? And I go, yeah, yeah, they are. And so what we can take from these negative experiences or difficulties in life or periods where we need to grieve or go through trauma is that there is something on the other side, Right. Let me tell you. Can I tell you a quick story about Terry? So sure. Terry's this person who. Oh my gosh, first story. I was so. Asked my wife. I was so, reticent to tell her story because I thought I might make her sound pitiful. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, because, she had been kind of abandoned by her family. She gets cancer on her way to the hospital. Her boyfriend, her fiance, says, "Uh, sorry, I'm out." I can't handle this. By the way, I got somebody else pregnant. You know, you're, you're on your own. Then she goes in support groups for her particular type of cancer. And basically everyone in the support group dies. So she's banned in there. She gets the recurrence of that cancer, has to go in for a bone marrow transplant, a second one. And what happens during the post-care? The person that's supposed to take care of her says, I can't handle this. I'm not strong enough. You're on your own. Sorry, you're on your own oh my God, you want to talk about somebody. She's just trying to figure out why am I here? Like everybody abandons me. Everybody dies. I'm not supposed to be living. I can't accomplish the things I want in life. And it's just like, oh my God. And almost everybody tells me her story is so inspiring because at the end, what she tells me is she goes, look, I live in a world of odds. I got a 5% chance of this. I got a 95% chance of that. She goes, I flip the odds to 50, 50 things are going to happen or they're not. And she goes, all I want to do every day is wake up to see the sun to try to figure it all out. That's it. That's my goal. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't 50, 50 chance. And I thought to myself, With everything that she's gone through, how inspiring is it? How hopeful is it? How amazing is it that she's able to have this kind of 50-50 view on things are going to happen or they're not? All I'm looking to do is to get up one more day to try to figure it all out. Isn't that what we all try to do? And with what she's been through, she still has that kind of positive, optimistic, hey, if the sun comes up, it'll help me figure it all out. How cool is that? So anyway, again, another rambling answer to your question, but um, it's those type of, of stories that I think are just so inspirational.
0: Well, and I think you're speaking to what my message is too. And what I, I try and share is that there is another side of it, but you have to like move your feet. You have to take action. Yeah. It's not just going to happen on its own. I always say too, it's like you're suffering already. You might as well suffer and move your feet.
1: Oh, it's so true. In my first book, uh, that was you know not like an industry book or an athletic book or something, but it was a book. I talk about this time that I I did this event, and uh, it was the first endurance event I did. I was still smoking at the time. I did a eighty seven mile rollerblade race from Athens, Georgia, to Atlanta, Georgia. 87 miles on rollerblades.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Completely stupid. And I had no business doing that. And at some point about 50 miles in, I was trying to roll blade up this hill. I was spent of every single thing I could be spent of. I was pissed off at myself that I was a smoker. I was pissed off at myself that I was there. I was so angry. I was so like, this is not you. This is just not you. And I'm sitting there absolutely dead on my feet, right? And I'm looking at this white sweat because it's so sw- salty, right? Because so, the sweat was so... And it's dripping on the asphalt. And it's creating this line that's going down this hill. And I said, and I'm compar- you know, perpendicular to that so I won't slide down the hill. And I'm looking down there and I remember having this thought of... As much as you think you don't belong here, as much as you've given 100% of everything that you have, there's no possible way you could go forward. And then I thought to myself, well, every step with a rollerblade, but every point that I go forward from here is a place I've never been, is a brand new experience, a brand new me. Like every, if I could just take one step, I'm going to find out something new. I'm going to f- It's going to be a territory I'd never been before. That was really empowering. So to what you said, yeah, if you can just keep your feet moving, you're going to discover stuff. You're going to find out a whole new you. You're going to encounter something that you never would have if you didn't move your foot forward. So I totally, totally ascribe to that opinion.
0: Yeah, I think it's so easy to get caught up in the story of what happened to us or Mm-hmm. You know, that we just allow it to dictate every action, therefore, you know, moving forward. Yeah, And yeah, so, yeah, I think we're on the same mission. Let's bring hope that there is hope, really. Yeah. yeah. And, and
1: there is. And look, some people uh, have it rougher than others. And, and I don't know what to say to that other than it's just, it's just life, Right. You might look at me and go, I could never have gotten through the things you've gotten through. And I look at you and go, what are you kidding me? I could have never gotten through the things you've gotten through, but we're just getting through what we get through,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: The the point is, is that we have a finite amount of time. We might as well make the most of it. We might as well try to be the best we can be, right? What's that famous saying? I'd rather be an optimist and wrong than a pessimist and right, right? So I might as well try. I might as well try to take that one step forward.
0: No, it's not even try, right? Comes right. back to you just do. Just do it. right, right? Because <laughs> yeah. my husband, he my husband, he oh, just drive me crazy. This was before my personal development and stuff that I, you know, stuff of working on myself, but he would always say there's no such thing as try. You either do or you don't.
1: Yeah. It's so true. It's true. Grab life I mean, by
0: the handlebars, right?
1: <laughs> by the handlebars and take one step forward. Just do it.
0: Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share?
1: No, if anybody wants to read the book, you could buy it wherever. And uh, like I said before, 100% of the proceeds are going to support the cancer focused charities. And it's not the money, it's more the hope that, you know, if you read the book, maybe you can relate to one more person that needs you to relate to them. Or you can allow one more person to relate to you because that's what you need. So, you know, I think um, the bigger goal of trying to equip people to better um, have these conversations to more easily have these conversations to understand what other people are going through or to allow people to understand what we're going through or have gone through. Um, it's a really important facet of trauma. It's a really important facet because as I know that some people have it way harder than we do, but everybody has it hard in one way or another, everybody does right? And if we can just help them or allow them to help us or just help each other get through it or try to get through it, right? Uh, How great is that? So I guess that'd be the last thing I'd say if anybody's interested, do that. And uh, I think, you know, hopefully the book will help.
0: And where can people find you?
1: And uh, they can find me at cycleoflives.org. Okay.
0: And are you on on social media at all?
1: I am. I'm on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, just all you got to do is look up David Richmond or cycle of lives or both. And you'll find me. I often post about, uh, you know, inspiring c- cancer stuff, inspiring life stuff. I also kind of quasi document some of the crazier athletic things that I do. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty fun.
0: Awesome. I will put all the links in the show notes as well. So look there. If you want thank to you, Victoria with David. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much for being here and sharing all of the wisdom that you've gained throughout your experience of cycle of lives and with your sister and sharing her story with us as well. Thank you.
1: Oh, you're welcome and thank you for asking so many great questions. You're very uh, good at what you do, and I know that you're helping people, so keep it up.
0: Thank you. And remember, when you unleash your heart, you unleash your life much love. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it, because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.